Thank you so much for joining me on this next episode of the Scholar Homies podcast. The game is to be told, not sold, conversations with the soul. I am here with Dr. Rika Barton. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor and a privilege to be in conversation with you. I am so glad we're, we're connecting again virtually. So I wanted to start with the first question with what does the game is to be told, not sold mean to you? So I love this um, phrase. And to me, it's really, we have the authority, the privilege, and the right to share our stories, our ways of being, um, what Dr. Venus Evans Winters would say, trade secrets to who we want to. And I think in this space of capitalism, academia, like everything has a price, but we're in charge of that. And so when I hear that phrase, it's really no for every black and brown woman who wants to get to this side and this space, I'm gonna give you these, these tips for free. Mm -hmm. And to a point of we're in a collective or someone sent you my way for help, or I see you out there and you see me and we've created this organic space where I'm gonna make sure you get through because there are a lot of people out here trying to stop us. And for no reason other then they think that they're the only people who should be in this space. And it shouldn't cost. We are paying in so many ways, so many ways that some of our counterparts don't have to. So some of this is just, I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't even have to be that deep. It doesn't have to be at an additional cost, but it's going to be authentic. It's going to be real. Definitely. And some of that, I like that trade secrets because it's a lot, it definitely is a hidden curriculum, right? Like how do we, how do we go about navigating these spaces? And you and I actually met on a research team. And I remember being in that space thinking like, okay, I'm maybe the only first gen, or I don't know how to write a research paper. I don't really know how to do a proposal. I feel like I'm faking the font. Like I'm just figuring it out. And then I realized like, we're all in the same space. Like we are all trying to figure it out, you know? And that was comforting being in that shared space with other women of color and trying to navigate it together, right? Knowing that we had um, had each other in a sense where we could tap in and be like, wait, what's going on? Because I, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. And at, you were one of the first people I met, like thinking back to, um, our connection and being in those rooms. And I'm like, what did I do? Like, I'm in a PhD program. I'm about to be sent on research trips. Everybody sounds like they know what they're doing. I have no clue. I'm going to sit right here and take some notes. But little by little, it was like, oh, this is how everyone felt when they started. And we're going to progress and get to the other side of this. Definitely. And it's been a lot of learning and unlearning, right? Because we were socialized in a very different way (laughs) that I would say that if you're not in that particular space, you didn't know. Um, But it was a way that I'll just say the docs also had to navigate us there. They have they're also navigating in in a certain way. And they I feel like sometimes they taught us the best that they could. But sometimes, you know, certain things may have slipped through the crack that we had to figure out. Right. And then getting to the other side, you're like, okay, maybe that wasn't the most efficient way. So I need to unlearn that. But, but again, it was like definitely being, I call it 
thrown in the the deep end, so to speak, and learning how to figure it out, right? In some cases, with um with as far as like research and and developing proposals and things like that. So, what advice would you have for someone who is navigating a research team or navigating a new PhD program? First, it's all about the collective. I tell everyone your um, your mentors, your people should be people who are further along in the program than you. Yes, you can learn from your professors, you can learn in class, but the reason I credit my success to my PhD program, A, my mentor is amazing, shout out to Dr. Marva Capello. Um, but in addition, everyone who I was meeting and talking to were, further along in the program. And I'm very good at taking all taking in all the advice and keeping the pieces I needed. What's not for me is not for me, but I'm going to listen. If four people are telling me not to take this certain professor, I'm not going to be like, oh, maybe it's different for me. I'm going to take the advice, especially because I thought about who's telling me and what, what their perspectives were. Mm -hmm. And also to make this your own program. I think that it's partly who I am in life. I'm gonna do it my way, but also being able to come in with the, I never thought I would do a PhD program. So now that I'm here, now that life has brought me to this space, I'm gonna do it in a way that feels good to me. And I'm gonna do it in a way that may not look like anyone else's, but it's for me. And I think remembering that it's really your program in a way that no other learning experience in your entire life has been, you have the agency to make it exactly what you want it to be. Absolutely, absolutely. So I was in the EDD program, right? So we were actually in different programs and as far as like making it my own, one thing I sort of realized early on was that I wanted to go faculty, which means that I was going to have to supplement this research component that was not being offered in my EDD program, right? And so, like you said, like kind of taking that charge or, and trying to figure out and asking questions with, okay, this program is not going to provide me with those experiences, granted, because I didn't know I got in the wrong program, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know there was a difference. Um, but there was a difference. So then I, I realized like, all right, I'm going to have to supplement them a lot to get this research experience and teaching experience on the side um, and sort of making it my own. Um, so there's another doc, he and I are kind of on the same, you know, EDD and then try, you know, going faculty route. And we have this joke that I'll, I won't name the conference, but they have fellowships and we are never selected for them, right? So we're like, they don't love us, but they don't love the EDDs because granted, had, we feel like if we've done a PhD, given the work that we've done, they would show us some love, right? It's just, so what do you think about, about the, like um, those differences in the programs? I honestly think that there are a difference. There, there is a, a difference that exists, but it's also the way you want to navigate it. And so we could get into this hierarchy, which was created kind of like these invisible borders, or we can talk about at the university that you are interested in, what do they say is the difference between these programs? And then do they align to where you want to be after? We all know that you can be EDD, PhD, or MA and get a job somewhere. It's really 
what are the clarifications around what training you are or aren't getting in the program you want? And does that lead you to where you want to be? So I think there's way more differences and similarities of where you went to school, what program you were in, who were your mentors, what was the dissertation phase like that can make or break those experiences. And those are probably more important to figure out than if it's an EDD or a PhD. Definitely. For someone who may be first generation coming into to these spaces, what advice would you give them on networking, both digitally and then physically in conference spacing? or even like in programs? This is a great question. And I think networking is really where I shine. First, people are always like, you are so social, you're everywhere, you do this, you know everyone. First of all, I'm very much old school Drake, no new friends. Like if I could just rock with the people who I know, trust, have been around with, I would forever. However, I know that new people open up new possibilities, new ideas, new learning experiences and just more doors. So I'm originally from Alexandria, Virginia. So I moved here five years ago and I, I knew two people. So for me, my networking became, how am I going to live and thrive in Southern California? So I got up and did things by myself, not because I enjoy it, but because I knew I had to in order to see if this new space was right for me. And I think that that's how you should approach any of your graduate um, school programs, even undergrad, like trying on everything so you know what you like and don't like is going to give you that experience of self and who you want to be, but also now so many other people know who you are, what you're about, some things you're interested in. How many opportunities, whether it be GA positions, RA positions, um, going to different conferences were because people knew of me because I was at every meeting or every opportunity. I probably said yes way too much, but it allowed me to have the awesome PhD experience that I've had. And I know a lot of people, especially a lot of um, women of color can't say they love their PhD program. And I actually did. I'm not pretending that it wasn't hard or that some people didn't try to do me dirty at some points in time, but I really enjoyed my experience. And I credit my networking, both peer to peer, um, professors, outside of class projects, and different organizations and conferencing. I would have to agree. I think one thing that I, I kind of consider myself lucky in the sense where I was socialized in a way where I'm like, okay, I, um, I was kind of, you know, taken care of a little bit, right? When I was in these conference spaces, I was introduced to people and I was told about opportunities, right? Whether I got them or not, it was different, but at least I was given the like, hey, you should apply to this. Hey, I'm going to tap you on this. You should do that. Um, and honestly, there'd be some things where I would see the docs who have, you know, I would say are my mentors, femtors, and they would, um, they applied for cer certain fellowships or certain um, programs. I'm like, oh, that's what I got to do. Okay, done. Got it, right? And it's just this way of, again, being socialized and then I think of, I talked to other doc students in different programs across the nation, and I realized like it, their experience is very different, right? They're the only ones that look like them in their entire department. Like it's it's a very different um, 
environment for them. So I, I do feel essentially lucky or and grateful that I had the experience that I did have. Granted, I had to supplement the same thing and um, it wasn't easy and I had my own challenges, but I think you also want to pick your battles, right? Like, do you want an overly racist in- environment or, you know, are you going to be challenged in a different way? So there's that. Um, tell me about your positionality and how it informs your work. This is an amazing question. And I think it's interesting because at the start of my PhD program, two amazing femtors um, asked me to write an article with them. And I'm like, me? me? You want me to do this? And it was at those beginning conversations of when positionality started showing up in all the articles. So it was like, oh, do we want to do this? What does this mean? And really having four years of when it became the norm, how do I want to speak about myself in ways that'll land for people without a conversation with me, in ways that are going to come before whatever I'm writing in this article? And I love that we're pushing people to do that because who you are should be the the front loading of what you have to say on this topic. And what came to me when you asked is when I went on the job market and it was like, I don't want to write a diversity statement. Like, why are we here? Can't you just meet me? And look, this is what I'm about. And I'm sitting with my advisor and I'm like, my positionality is I'm a black female teacher who wants to make sure that y'all not out here messing with my little black and brown babies. And literally, (laughs) I'm like, I can't write that here though. Mm -hmm. And so going to this space of, I am a critical educator who envisions equitable opportunities in education from pre-K through college and higher ed. And so I think depending on where I am, I'm still like, I'm a visual creative. I'm a multimodal researcher. I'm a black girl researcher. But at the end of the day, I'm a black female educator. And that has literally positioned me. And that's the way I ground myself in every single space, whatever the additional artifacts or pieces uh, that come from that um, are different depending on what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, I'm a black female educator. And that has been the way that I walk in the world and the way that I teach and the way that I research and the way that I create. Thank you. And I I love that you said you're also a visual creative, right? And I think that's, that'll take us to like the the next kind of piece of of this and why I think it's so important to highlight us um, because we're multifaceted individuals, right? Like, yes, we do research. Yes, we're bum scholars. We already know that. But we also have multiple things that are our um, interests of us. Um, and so tell me about that. Tell me about your visual creative side. Yes. So it was 2020 when the Scholarly SOAS was created. And it really was finally a way of me merging this creative and academic space. And out of that was just, 
I can, I can create these parameters. I can create how I show up. And I think just I grew up with sewing. My mom taught me when I was really little. My dad's passion is photography. So really this blending of creative spaces, the love for the aesthetic and visual, when I realized that I could put this into my work, that this could be grounding um, in this academic space, it was sort of like the aha moment. But really, even going back to positionality, I think you go back and realize so many of these pieces and parts were there all along. You just, they were sort of fragmented because the ways we were supposed to show up in spaces or the parts of us that were denied. And so when I look back at my years of being an elementary school teacher, I've been a wedding planner. I've been a dance teacher. So all of the ways that I've ever showed up were around this visual and this creative. I was just now bringing all these talents together with the PhD, with the research and the teaching. So being able to not only have this creative space in work, but also have a whole research field that is um, really designed for that feels really good. I love it. I love it, especially because I joke around, like for me, like even the podcast, people are probably like, what? Like, where did this come from? I'm like, no, nah, this is my rising Gemini. Like, y'all have no idea. I have this other creative piece that I need to cultivate sometimes, right? Just for, just for myself, right? Sometimes yeah, I got to connect it to research at some point, but it's kind of for just for me a little bit. Um, what I love and I is your visuals about the like the mixtapes. You're like, what if we dropped research articles like mixtapes? And it's so beautifully creative. Um, and I just I'm such a visual person. And so I really and I love music and I just get it. So tell the people listening a little bit more about that. Yes. So I have really since the start of my PhD program. I wanted to do it differently. Why are we putting these amazing pieces of writing and our identity and our visions into these boring um, pages? Like there has to be another way to do it. And I think all throughout, I was like, how am I gonna do this differently? How do we get to the space of making our work accessible? Um, I'm talking about little Black girls and their lived experiences. This doesn't show up for me on in Black and white paper. Even looking at some of the cooler, more innovative journals that are coming out, you have to pay if you're publishing um, images of a certain kind or quality. So I'm like, none of this is really putting it together in the way that I want to. And my fiance is a graphic designer. So just being able to be creative together has been really fun. And I'm like, you know, what if it really was like a mixtape? Like what I wanna do, think about the energy when we get that submission, when we get that accepted with minor revisions, it really is another one. So I hear DJ Khaled, every time I'm like, oh, we got another one? Oh, we're, we're published? Like, what could this look like? And so finally, I was like, you know what? Now that the dissertation is done, now that I am finding these moments of free time, 
what do I want this to look like? And that's when I was like, manuscript mixtapes. I am going to drop. I am going to release. They come out on Fridays because that's when new music comes out that we're really going to drop this. And it has been so much fun. And so um, my fiance and I literally sit there and it's so cute because he's not an academic. He is a graphic designer, a musician, a creative by nature, but he's into it because he's seen me do this for so many years at this point. So he'll go into the article. He'll look at my presentation that I've done on it. He'll ask me, okay, so sum it up and we'll talk through what are the things I want to bring out. And then we'll both go search through iconic um, music covers and things that sort of align and it's fun especially people like you who are like it's the visuals for me when people get it that's so much fun like I can get it and I'm gonna be happy I'm gonna keep dropping them for every article that it comes out from now on but when people see it and so the first one um I think we did it it was Kendrick Lamar's Poetic Justice but only if you're a music head can you look at my visual and be like oh I know where that's from mm -hmm. and the last one was the miseducation of Lauren Hill and that one was so visually representative and close that people were like oh I get it so just seeing that I knew it was a hit <laughs> and yeah. but watching it resonate is really fun and then especially that we resonate with the with the artist or with the album in particular. So like the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, that was the first CD that I physically ever had. And then to see it, I'm going to read the your article, The Elevation of Black Girl's Hair. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just, it's so, it, it's just so powerful and, and impactful, right? To see that and to see those connections. So I love the visual mixtapes um, that are represented as your academic articles. And I hope you never stop <laughs> and it's it's beautiful. It's a, and you're right. It's a way like how do we get our research out there accessible, especially for the communities that we are working for and are working, you know, towards liberation for, right? Um, and because we're, I feel like um the scholars before us, the generations before us, maybe didn't have didn't have that in mind. For you know, we're we're kind of like we're on a new scene and we're we're trying something different. Um, so the way that you are able to visually do that is I think so brilliant. And I'm so glad that you have found a, a different way to catch everyone's attention. Excuse me, I'm a little congested no. here. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it also goes back to the reasons why we went into this work. Mm -hmm. We didn't go into this just to have another paper. We went into this to do the work that we can take back to our communities. And we know that our world is visual and just is increasingly so um, with TikTok, with social media. So thinking of if I prefer the visuals, who else does? And how many people will this make it more accessible for? And I think it's so interesting that there's so much hidden behind these paywalls and these exclusive spaces that other people could resonate with, could be moved or helped or could shape their own work, whether it's in or outside of our fields. So even having another angle, another entry point to some of this work through the visual is really cool. And knowing that I think 
moving past the scholars before us. They were up against a whole bunch of things. They made, they paved their ways for us, for us to go knock some more of these doors down. You want my article? I'm gonna send it. You don't have journal access. Here you go. Like, how else do we get this out? And so I want to continue doing it. I want to get to the point of making like mini documentaries, like adjacent to music videos. So I want to have um, playlists that correspond to it. So really looking at the possibility of the visual, not just in my methodology, but in the sharing and the publishing too. I love all of that. And I'm thinking like, how do we then as emerging scholars break down those barriers and kind of reframe what, honestly, what tenure looks like for us, right? Um, so don't think that I'm launching this podcast and I wasn't on that research committee, subcommittee, looking at tenure being like, oh, we should include podcasts as, um, as forms of, of research, right? Because I am kicking with the scholar homies and getting this perspective and seeing how we can build community and seeing, you know, all these other things, but also like, let's, let's reframe it for us. Yes, of course, traditional research is important. However, we realize that they are behind paywalls and they're not reaching the communities that we intended them to reach. And we have so many good platforms that are accessible and free. Why are we not using those, right? Yes. Um, tell me what a scholar homie means to you. I love this phrase. I love that is the title of your podcast. And I even love hearing all the definitions that different people have. For me, it just means you can do both. And that's what I've been saying for years. So then when hearing you say scholar homies, I was like, oh, that's what I mean when I say you can do both. And thinking of people like us and shouting out Dr. Melissa Vang and Dr. Darielle Blevins and um, my other friend, Dr. Sharice Winston, who is a whole neuroscientist. But to me, scholar homies is we can do both. We can sit up in our screen print impactful tee and some slacks or some jeans at AERA and present our findings to the world. And we can also crack up about the latest TikTok meme and then go back to how memes can be incorporated in my curriculum for my course and then chill with a glass of wine next to the pool like we can do all of those things like this is what a professor looks like this is what a researcher looks like so when I think of my scholar homies it's, don't get it twisted we can we can see if our mechanisms still work and still go to the conference don't get it twisted we are here about our community it's for the culture but no I completely know the seminal scholars that I need to cite when I do this. And I can match you in whatever argument or conceptual framework you want to use today. And I can still do it going in, out, and around my African-American language, my Spanish, Spanglish, and my English. So don't get it twisted. I love that. I love that when you first dropped there was, uh, there's images of all the scholar homies you just mentioned, like their articles 
on a shirt. And I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Because for me, it was a way of you honoring your homegirls. Like, I see you. I see the work that you do. And again, it may be behind a paywall, but you know what? We're going to literally put this printed on a shirt. We're going to put this printed on something that we can feel, right? And I I didn't realize it at first. I remember seeing the shirt and I'm like, oh, you know, at a distance, you see articles, right? And then as I'm like looking and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Melissa Vang. Like she's sitting right next to me. Like, and I realized like, you know, Vanessa Falcone, like yeah. I, I, these are names of people that we know we sit next to, and you know, around the table and to see it's So it, it's, it was a way, a really cool way to honor that. I think, cause again, like you said, we're dropping these articles, like DJ Khaled said, another one. And then they kind of, we're so excited. You know, I think what's, what you're doing is there's so much time and effort and work that goes into these articles, like a year's worth of work. And then when they drop, we are so excited, but then the excitement kind of fades away. Right. But like, how do we keep that alive? And then the way that you've been able to do that visually, one, through the mixtapes, and then two, like adding it to to shirts and to, to like product, I thought was fascinating. Thank you so much. And so the shirt that you're referencing is the um, Femme publication print. And it was so important to me to pay homage to these women of color who have come before me. And it was such a humbling space of creation because I didn't have an article that I couldn't put myself on my shirt but that wasn't the point the right. point was I have this amazing idea and I have people that I can honor and um, showcase through it and I went to each of the women individually thinking like are they gonna like this idea do they trust me with this how do they feel about this and it was a enthusiastic yes from everyone like oh my gosh of course I can't wait to see it and um I have to pay homage to my brother who has passed away but he was so instrumental he created the first like mock-up for me and it was really like here's what I'm thinking you know like you could do newspaper stuff but I want it to be articles like I want it to be real and he was like would it look like this and then I knew it was born when he created that first thing and so I made my own textile I got it printed I made I sewed the first couple of shirts myself and to be able to really see that interaction of fashion creativity design and academia and something that's tangible it is so cool. And to know that I felt that way throughout the creation process, like everyone listening, y'all will never understand how speechless I am every time I see my stuff on someone. Like there's no words for that. Like I knew it's a thing. I knew it was important, but for other people, past my friends and people on campus to get it and see it, and buy it and wear it and love it it's so special that is real I was this was probably maybe a year ago I was at a conference and I was sitting next to somebody who had some of my merch like some of the stickers and she didn't know that it was my merch right and so 
it, it was this like this weird but like like there was this cool moment like oh my gosh like somebody's you know most of the people that I know have it but there's there's some people who I don't you know I never get to meet that that did buy it and it, you're right when you see it and other folks resonate with it and you know you kind of created it I'll say I'll speak for me like I know when I created my stuff it was more because I needed to see it right mm-hmm. I didn't see myself in academia so I created something mm-hmm. um but then when other folks resonate with it it kind of takes on a special meaning that yeah. that they they also resonate with it too I called the first few purchases stranger buys because I knew my people were going to support like, oh, they got a shirt, they got a sticker. Thank you so much. But I was like, oh my gosh, it's a stranger. It's a stranger buy. Like they get it. Oh my goodness. This is so exciting. And I also just want to take this time publicly to thank you. And I was just telling my fiance like, oh, I'm about to um, record this podcast with, um, I don't know if you remember, but Academic Soul. Oh yeah, yeah. She was there. <laughs> the beginning so I think it's just really honoring that there's space for all of us we are two women of color who have merch and a website around being in academia and there was no competition like I reached out to you were like oh hey here are my secrets it goes back to those trade secrets it goes back to being told not sold and on our conditions and terms so I just truly appreciate you you were there from the beginning Yes, thank you. I'm so glad that you we I remember that conversation very clearly. And then I'm, I'm just glad to see it like develop it and, and go on. And I just recently somebody reached out to me in the DMs. and was like, hey, how do you how did you start the podcast? I'm like, look, this is going to be the most amateur response. But this is what I did. <laughs> and this is how I'm doing it. When I say I'm building the plane as I'm flying it, that that's what we're doing. Because again, it's like, we're too busy to stop and really try to like do it right. I remember thinking, I got to have the right mic. I was looking at the different microphones and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to just throw on these headphones and press play. We, that, that's what we're going to do because we don't have time to look for the right mic right now. Um, I wanted to ask you about the scholarly mujeres that you have. Um, you had like this series with Dr. Mara Lopez. She was on our, our podcast with episode two. Um, we talked about your presentation at AERA this spring. It goes down in the DMs. Tell me more about how, I guess, about your collective and how that started going. Yes, and I think that goes back to the networking. And I think we all found ourselves in this space of really, what are we doing in a pandemic in these programs? And I think that set in even more for me because Southern California is my second home. So when we were locked down, when we couldn't go anywhere but to Zoom University, I didn't have my people. It was so isolating. And to think that for me, California is school. Like it has been the majority of my existence since living here. So when school was cut off, when I couldn't be on campus, when I couldn't kiki in the equity room, when we weren't going to different places on campus to eat, what is this place for me? And I think that's when the online community became so much more valuable and necessary. And Mata um, and I, we met in the DMs and it was just so authentic. I think that's something that comes through in all of your work and your conversations is the authenticity. And we just started chatting it up and just had so much in common, her roots in San Diego and 
the work that we do, the platforms we were creating, and it was all love. And I just appreciate that we can exist in these spaces without the competition, without the ego, um, because the world is trying to hold us back. So we don't need to do that to each other. And so we were just like, what are we going to do together? Because clearly there's a vibe, there's a connection. What are the things we can do? And that's when we were like, I love AERA. I love educational conferences. I love being able to apply for university funding and be somewhere. So I'm like, okay, what stories can we create? What is the intersection of us? And it really became the visual methodology and the CRT, the counter um, space and storytelling. And so we put those together and it was really cool because I even pushed myself and I did an analysis of all of the emojis that we use in six months of our DM conversations between each other. And what came out was just the community and the love and how we supported each other um, and how we used our online spaces as resistance to everything we face in the academy. So networking, whether in person, online, it's still so beneficial and it's so comforting and it's always there. And we did all of that before meeting in real life. Yeah. We met once for like 45 minutes when she was passing through town. And the next time we met in person was when we did our AER, AER presentation. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I, would, I was at that presentation and I would have never thought that that was, you know, like probably like one of the bigger times that y'all were meeting for the first time. That's amazing. Um, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think it's beautiful how a lot of us have been able to gravitate towards each other and truly authentically uplift. And I think that sometimes not always is there. And what I'm seeing a theme kind of throughout these episodes is like, we want community, we want network, but we want it to be authentic, right? We don't want to be in these spaces where we have to fake the funk. We want to show up our authentic selves, right? Like, yeah, I'm a scholar, but I'm the homie too. And they can both coexist together. Yes. And I think sadly, not everyone has found that congruence and that intersection. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to say that everybody can't be a scholar homie, but you have to do your own work to know showing up, what feels authentic and how your work, your real life, your package, your Instagram, your performance, all of that is the same. And I think that's why even when we're meeting people, we're finding out that they're still connected in some way to someone we already know, because at the core of it, we're all showing up as scholar homies. We're all showing up in our truth and our work in authentic ways. Absolutely. I cannot wait for that article to drop. I've already told a student about it. I was like, look, there's this article that's coming out at some point and as soon as it drops I, I I'm going to give it to you because they they need it they're going to need it for their dissertation <laughs> so let me know when it when it's when it's um on on its way out but thank you so much for sharing all of your insight I want to get to a portion of the podcast where I call it this or that and you tell me and then we you know we can go from there so the first one is 90s R&B or 90s rap 90s R&B love it TikTok you gotta go with it. Okay. Got to. TikTok or Instagram? Instagram. I'm new to TikTok. I just started. I only have like one post, y'all. Give me some time. 
<laughs> I'm also not liking that TikTok is like snitching on everybody and telling everybody like that you're there. I'm like, I don't know if I like that, but <laughs> okay. Uh, Project Runway or America's Top Model? Project Runway all day. Okay. Virginia Beach or Mission Beach? Mission. Have you seen the color of Virginia Beach's water? <laughs> I have, I have. <laughs> and that's, we, I, remember I used to live there when I was a kid. So yeah, and it's the water, yeah. Um, sewing or research? Ooh, you got me. Mm. That is so crazy. The fact that they're this tied shows how much I love both, but I'm going to say sewing. Okay, I love it. Any last words for those listening? Just do it. Do it scared. Do it afraid. Do it by yourself if nobody's around at the moment. Um, I think my grandma, I think I was six or seven, and she said, just just ask. The most they can say is, is no. And I just carried that throughout. So what if you fail? But what if you succeed? What if this becomes exceedingly more than you can ever ask for or imagine? And that's really what I keep going with and what has paved the way for all these crazy ideas and innovations. I love that. Thank you so, so much for spending time with me today and reconnecting and um, just sharing all the space. I'm going to drop all the socials in the episode notes so people know where they can follow you and check you out and visit your website and stay in touch. Thank you.